We're in John chapter 17 today, if you'd like to turn there. John 17. I'm a little weak in the voice, so give me as much boost as you can upstairs, please. Um, Karen and I went home on a Friday in 1996, went home to Elyria, Ohio, to visit my parents. My dad had worked that day, but the lung cancer that had plagued him for the previous two years was advancing rapidly. We ate supper together, and after supper, he told me to come into the bedroom. So I went in, sat down on the bed, and he began instructing me on what to do after he died. He got out um, his Marine Corps medals, and he gave them to me. He showed me things that were valuable to him, told me where to find important papers, and then he looked me in the eye, and he told me to take care of my mother. As far as his health was concerned, after that, it was like stepping off a cliff. His body started giving out. Over the next few days, he deteriorated rapidly, and I asked him if he was afraid. Again, he looked me in the eye. It was one of the last things he ever said to me. And he answered, I could do this standing on my head. I don't think I'll forget those last moments with my dad before he died. I remember what he said. Remember how he said it and what he looked like when he was saying it. It was that way for the disciples of Jesus, too. On the night before he died, Jesus took them aside. And he told them what was on his heart and mind. And they never forgot it. He told them many things. You can read about some of them from John chapter 13 through chapter 17. But then at the most critical moment, he stopped talking to them and started talking about them to God. They got to listen in on his prayer, to hear what was on his heart at that most critical moment. And we get to listen in too. His longest recorded prayer came from that night and is found in John chapter 17. We're going to think about the prayer in its entirety, although briefly, but I want to get us started by reading the first 11 verses. So if you will look there, we'll put it on the screen too. John chapter 17, verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Father, the time has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Now this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they've obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you've given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they're yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, 
but they're still in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Now the prayer breaks down like this. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for his apostles and other current disciples. And then in verses 20 through 26, he prays for all those who would believe on him in the future. And that means if you're a believer in Jesus, the master prayed for you that evening. And you know what? He's still praying for you. He always lives, or as first century Greek was capable of saying, he lives every when to intercede for you. So here's the question. When he intercedes for you now, for what does he pray? I suppose he prays the same kinds of things he prayed then. We think primarily about our health and happiness and prosperity. He thinks primarily of our soul's holiness and unity. But that's because he knows that our health, happiness, and prosperity depend upon our soul's holiness and unity. Now, as I mentioned, Jesus prayed first for himself. I've heard people say as if they thought it was commendable or displayed some kind of spiritual superiority. Oh, I never pray for myself. I I only pray for others. That's not spiritually mature. That's just dumb. Jesus prayed for himself first. You know how when the flight attendant goes through all the pre-flight safety demonstrations, he or she always instructs you to put on your oxygen mask before helping the person next to you? Why? Because if you don't, you might not be able to help the person next to you. Prayers like that. God wants us not just to pray for ourselves, but he does want us to pray for ourselves. Only we don't want to stop there. He wants us to pray for ourselves so that we have the spiritual stamina to pray for others. Jesus prayed, verse 1, that the Father would glorify him so that he could glorify the Father. Jesus wanted the Father to draw all people to himself, to Jesus, but that was so that he could bring those people to the Father. Jesus never wanted glory as an end in itself. He never sought it. And interestingly, we read again and again that when people encountered Jesus, they went away praising his Father. If some alleged spokesman for God seems to be looking for glory, collecting it for himself, boasting in his success, or reiterating his accomplishments, don't listen to him. He doesn't know the spirit of Jesus. Now the hour had come. John has mentioned Jesus' hour, or time as the NIV has it, again and again, and now it's finally arrived. It was time for Jesus, who had always deflected glory to his Father. It was time for him now to be glorified, but not as his followers had imagined, in royal pomp and splendor. His glory was going to come on a shameful cross. The cross is, astonishingly, the place where God's glory shines the brightest. It's there that his love consumes sin, and there that his holiness includes rather than excludes sinners. It's there on the cross that we see the, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew, this is back from John chapter 13, verse 3, he knew that God had given all things into his hands. And, as he would say later, all authority had been given to him. 
And for what purpose did God give him this authority? It's not to condemn, but to save. When we hear someone claiming authority, as Jesus does here, we almost reflexively think of it as authority to demand and require and punish if need be. But Jesus uses his authority to give people eternal life. He speaks about that in verse 3. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Notice that Jesus does not say that knowing God leads to eternal life. He says it is eternal life. But how can that be? How can knowing a person, even God, be eternal life? Well, let me give you an illustration that has its shortcomings. But just imagine a 40-year-old bachelor who meets a woman and gets to know her, and knowing her changes his life. I mean, he was set in his ways, and his ways were pretty much set in cement. He spent his evenings the same way, went to the same restaurants where he saw the same people and made the same small talk, read the same books, took the same kinds of vacations every year. But this woman that he's met has him going to sushi restaurants and liking it. He's making a whole new set of friends. Instead of spending Saturdays in the library reading about things, he now goes skiing. He's even tried skydiving. Knowing her has given him a new kind of life. But if knowing her is a new kind of life, what is knowing God? It is literally a new life that is capable of things that the old life could not even conceive. It's that life that changes you in this world and then thrives in the next. It's a life that even death can't stop. It's eternal life, the life of the age to come. It's important to realize that this kind of life is not learned. You can't just learn this life from a book. It's received. More than that, it's shared. This life doesn't come to us because we know about the Father and Son. It comes to us because we know the Father and Son, because they enter our set and cement lives, and their presence changes us. Knowing them gives us a different kind of life. Religion can't do that. Spirituality can't do that. Attending seminary can't do that. You need to know God. And the better you know him, the more your life takes on this eternal kind of glow. It's gradually reshaped around the joy and peace and glory of the age to come. Jesus says, glorify me that I may glorify you. Why did he want to glorify his father? Because he was full of love and admiration for his father. Because the father filled him with joy. Because he wanted everyone to know and love the father as he knows and loves the father. And you know what? When our lives are what they could be and will be, we'll want the same thing. We will be so full of love and admiration for the father and the son The Father and Son will so fill us with joy that we'll want everyone to know them the way we do. And when that's true of us, our witness to God will be dynamite. After Jesus prays for himself, after he's put on the oxygen mask, he prays for his friends, his apostles and other close disciples, the ones who have, verse 6, kept God's word. And his one request for them is that God will keep them. 
verse 11, Holy Father, keep through your own name those whom you've given me. Keep them. Jesus is not naive. He knows that living as God's person in this world is a battle. He knows it better than anybody. It's about to kill him. He knows that God's people have an enemy. He's just told them right before he began to pray. Remember the first verse I read you after Jesus said this? What did he say? He said, in this world, you will have trouble. He knows the danger, and he doesn't minimize it, not here or anywhere else. But he also knows his father. He knows that nothing can snatch his friends out of his father's protective hand. Some people, when they read this, are bothered by the fact that Jesus says specifically that he's not praying for the world. That's verse 9. I'm not praying for the world. That seems unloving on his part. But how could he pray these things for people who don't know him and don't want to know him? For people who don't want to glorify his father and who don't want to be unified with each other. How can he pray for them to be with him and see his glory when being with him is the last thing on earth they want? And his glory would be a source of fear and revulsion to them. That's why he prays for his people instead. But you see, he knows that the good of the world depends on his people. They're the key to the world knowing that the Father sent him, the key to the world believing in him. The people for whom he prays are in the world, and even if the world doesn't know it, they are the hope of the world. Jesus hadn't forgotten the world. He has a plan to rescue and save it. And guess what? We're his plan. You're his plan to rescue the world. That's why he prays for us. We're to be the answer to his prayer, the hope of our neighbors and the hope of the world. It's almost incredible. What do you think the angels must have thought when Jesus left a ragtag band of men and women to bring salvation to the world? After watching Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial and the apostolic band's terror, the angels must have wanted to ask, Lord, just what is the backup plan? But there was no backup plan. That ragtag group, Peter, John, Thomas, Martha, Mary, and now this ragtag group, Shane and Karen and Mike and Barb and Bob, we're the plan. We're the only plan. But how? And we're not famous. We're not influential. What can we do? Here's the answer which just happens to be this week's transforming truth in which Jesus mentions again and again. What can we do? We can be one. Verse 11, that they may be one as we are one. We can be unified. We can be one. God's plan for the world hinges on the real unity of his people. Not on their intelligence, thank God for that. Not on their cultural savvy. Not on their understanding of social change and marketing principles. Not even on their theological sophistication, but on their unity. You notice why Jesus asked his father to protect his people? Was it to keep them healthy? No. 
Was it to prevent them from pain? No. Was it so that they could worship God in peace? No. He asked his father to protect his people so that they might be one. Everything hinges on that. I think I have, like many of my evangelical brothers and sisters, undervalued the oneness that Jesus cared so much about. I've watched the ecumenical movement from a distance and have seen it and often criticized its flaws, but at least those people are trying to be the answer to Jesus' prayer. There is no getting around it. Jesus longs for, prays for, and will eventually see the unity of his people. It's of the utmost importance to him. Jesus prayed for his immediate disciples, the people who were with him at that moment, as well as the other men and women and children who were trusting in him to be one. But he didn't stop there. He went on to pray for the people who would believe in him through their witness, people around the earth, down the corridors of time, all of his people, including you and me. When he prayed for the men and women who were then following him, he asked the Father to protect them so that they might be one. Not that they might be comfortable or prosperous or healthy. He didn't ask the Father to place them in strategic positions of influence. He didn't pray for political impact or financial success. He prayed that they would be one. And you know what? They needed prayer in that area. Remember what Luke's Gospel tells us? Earlier that same day, On their way to the Passover celebration, the disciples got an argument into an argument about which of them was the most important. Here, a few hours later, Jesus is asking the Father to act on their behalf so that they can be one. He prayed for them, but as I said already, he prayed for us who would believe through their message. And what did he pray for us? Precisely the same thing. Look at verse 20 and 21. See, the plan didn't change. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that's you and me, that they all may be one. He repeats that theme again in verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. Verse 23, he states it yet another time. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. What's going to convince the world that Jesus was sent from heaven to reveal God and rescue humanity? There's only one thing capable of doing that. Christ's followers living in complete unity. Not better evangelistic methods, though Christian unity will lead to that. Not universal saturation by the Bible and Christian literature. Though unity will lead to that, the most convincing argument for the truth regarding Jesus is the unity of those who have faith in him. So what did Jesus have in mind when he talked about unity? Was he talking about doctrinal agreement? Agreeing, for example, on the operative principle behind the atonement. If we all subscribe to the penal substitutionary theory of atonement, will Jesus' prayer be answered then? What if we all agree on how the Lord is present in Holy Communion? Will that be the answer to his prayer? I don't think so. 
What if we get rid of denominations and we consolidate all our churches? That's not it either. But if he wasn't thinking of doctrinal or organizational oneness, what is this unity that he cared so much about? The only kind of Christian unity that Jesus cared anything about is a unity of love, a unity in love, first for God and then for one another. The church, you see, wasn't divided into competing denominations by theology or practice alone, or even primarily. It was divided by lovelessness. And if that's the case, we can be sure that unity will not be achieved by theological compromise, but by loving sacrifice. Jesus wants far more for his people than a theological consensus of opinion. He wants them to share the oneness that he and his fathers, his father have. May they be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. It's a oneness in which the Father loves the Son and the Son gives himself to the Father, in which the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father, a oneness without competition, without comparison, a oneness of purpose, of character, and of love. That's the kind of oneness Jesus wants for us. That's the kind of oneness that will win the world. It's the kind of oneness that the world hasn't seen, except rarely. In verse 22, Jesus says that he's given his followers the same glory. Now, this is when he's praying for us. He says, I've given them the glory, Father, that you gave me, so that they can be one. What is this glory that he's given to us, and how will having it make us one? Interestingly, when the scriptures speak of Christ's glory, they almost always do so in the broader context of Christ's suffering. Scripture speaks frequently, actually, about us sharing in Christ's glory, but always in that broader context of us sharing in his sufferings. What is this glory that the Father gave the Son and that the Son has given us? I think now... And there may be more to it than this, but I think it's the glory of sacrificing oneself in the service of the Father for the sake of his children. Paul actually calls that a gift in Philippians chapter 1. The gift of suffering. There's a kind of glory that divides people. But this kind of glory has the power to make people one. During the Second World War, British prisoners of war were coming apart at the seams in a Japanese labor camp. You you might know the story. There was infighting and selfishness. The, The respect due those in command had fallen off. The privation and hardship was just tearing them to pieces. The Japanese fed them too little, worked them too hard, was forcing them to build a bridge over the River Kwai. Once during the daily tool count, so every day when the men came back, their tools were all counted. Once during the daily tool count, a shovel came up missing. 
And a brutal guard began shouting at the men, ranning at them, and finally worked himself into this paranoid fury. He demanded that the man who took the shovel step forward and take his punishment, but no one stepped forward. That's when the guard totally lost it. He began shrieking in broken English, all die, all die, and he cocked his rifle, and then one man stepped forward and stood at attention and said, I did it. The guard used his rifle to beat him to death right there on the spot. Later, when the tools were counted, it turned out that there had not been a shovel missing. They had been counted wrongly. The man only stepped forward to save his comrades from being shot. After that, the POWs pulled together. They couldn't wait to help each other. They showed respect for each other. One man's sacrifice brought all the men together as one. Jesus has given us the glory of giving ourselves for each other, of laying down our lives, as St. John puts it, for each other. Now, that may happen in big ways, but usually it happens in a hundred lesser ways, small sacrifices. And in that environment, even when we can't agree on how the Lord's presence is manifested in Holy Communion, we still have oneness because the Lord's presence is being manifested in our relationships all the time, day in and day out. So here's our transforming truth. Jesus cares about, longs for, prays for, and insists upon the oneness of his people. Well, how do we know if someone really is his person? Well, why worry about that? Are we afraid that we might have to sacrifice when it isn't absolutely necessary? That's not the spirit of Jesus. Don't ask if that other man or woman is really a Christian. You be a Christian. You be his person. That is, you act like Jesus. Share his glory. Choose to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. How do you do that? Well, first you start where you are. You use the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and uttermost parts of the earth principle. That is, you start close to home and you work outwards. In this case, if you're part of Lockwood, start giving yourself to your brothers and sisters right here. If you're visiting today from some other church, start there. One thing you can do is pay attention to the prayer requests. When Phil was up here praying, pray for the person listed in the prayer request, and then maybe give him or her a call. See if you can help. That's Jesus-like. Follow Paul's prescription. In honor, preferring one another. Talk to God about that. Then look for opportunities to put someone in church, anyone, above yourself, and do it. But don't stop at Lockwood. I mean, go to the Bold Faith Rally tonight. Plan on it. Be there where hundreds of Christians from other churches around the county will be gathering. Talk to them. Pray with them. Pray for them. Maybe take them out for coffee and dessert and pick up the tab. But love your brothers and sisters. But don't stop there. Wherever you find people who love Jesus, love them. Give to them. Pray for them. Who can tell what great things God will do because of that? But don't even stop there. You can't always tell who belongs to Jesus, so glorify your Father in heaven by doing good things for people you don't even know. For neighbors, even for enemies, put yourself out, and in so doing, lift Jesus up. Remember that Jesus gave himself not only for our sins, 
but for the sins of the whole world. Don't just give yourself for your fellow Christians, though that's the place to start. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. So the question will arise, though. If you say, okay, I'm motivated. I'm going to do this. I'm going to give myself for others. The question arises, if I'm living like that, sacrificing for others, giving myself away, who's going to take care of me? Won't I get trampled on? used, taken for granted? It's a legitimate question. And the answer is, I think, Jesus will take care of you. That's the best part. I love what I see in Matthew chapter 10 and then in the first verse in chapter 11. Matthew's telling us about Jesus. He has just sent out the 12 apostles on their first ministry tour. I'm going to send you out. He gives them all these instructions through chapter 10. As soon as they leave, Jesus himself goes to teach and preach in their towns, to their families and their friends. While they're serving him, he's taking care of them. When you are pouring yourself out for someone else, Because of love. And that's the one condition. It won't be the same if you're doing it for attention or doing it to merit salvation. But when you're doing it because of love, when you're pouring yourself out because of love, he'll pour himself into you because of love. He considers whatever you do for one of the least of his brothers and sisters is something you did for him, and he'll not forget it. The author of Hebrews assures us that God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. The love you've shown him as you've helped his people. Let's pray. Holy Father, may all of us be one just as you are in Jesus and he is in you. May we also be in you so that the world may believe that you sent Jesus. Father, our glorious elder brother has given us the glory that you gave him so that we might be one as you are one. Jesus in us and you in Jesus Bring us to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent Jesus and have loved us even as you've loved him. Amen. Let's stand together and we're going to sing.